Good morning. Thanks, guys, for that. Michael, that was adequate. We uh, are going to finish up, if I can figure out how to do this, we're going to finish up First Timothy today. Oh, I'll turn mine on. Sorry. We're going to finish up First Timothy today. Uh, my name is Cole. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, and as we finish up Timothy, um, there's just some, I mean, I don't have to say this. This goes without saying. There's just kind of all over the board. Um, this is as this is Paul's uh, kind of last couple paragraphs to Timothy. He's really kind of cramming a lot in there, and so um, as I was studying it this week, there's some continuity to it, um, but otherwise, like it really is just a bunch of kind of things that Paul is getting off his chest before he goes. Um, so there's a lot to consider, a lot to look at, um, but it's a phenomenal passage as you might expect. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for a chance uh, to just be with your people, um, reading your word. God, I, it, it's just such an awesome feeling to be around people who have different, uh, obviously different lives, different things that they're passionate about, different jobs, different all those things, God, but there's a unity in Christ. Um, and so, I mean, just being up here and being able to see all the people here and in first service, there's so many people that I have zero in common with except um, for what's most important, except that we share love for Jesus and a desire for his name to be known. And God, the community that's built around that is fantastic. Um, God, so as we look a little bit at community here, when Paul is, is just beseeching t- uh, t- or Timothy sorry, to lead well and to lead the community well and to lead his church well. Um, God, let us just see what you desire us to learn, not just as the church, but as individuals and families, um, so that we go here having really listened to your Holy Spirit, um, having an idea of what you want us to do next. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy 6.11, fight the good fight of faith is a phrase that, is a phrase that Paul uses. Um, so I thought a little bit about fighting this week. Uh, I know there's, I'm, I'm 39, I'll turn, I'll turn 40 in a few months. Um, and there's been a lot of times in my life, and I hope maturity in my life, where things I would fight about when I was 10, 16, 20, 25, 30, 39, and yesterday, years old, I, I maybe, hopefully I've matured out of that place where I don't fight for those things anymore. It always kind of makes me laugh. I'm a big sports fan. I love the Chiefs. I love the Royals. I love Nebraska. But it always kind of makes me laugh when you see those videos of two sports fans from different teams just kind of fighting. Not just kind of fighting. Just kind of throwing haymakers at each other, trying to beat the tar out of another person. I'm, I always just kind of look at that and be like, that's really stupid. Like, that's silly. Like, and I don't, maybe I'm, I don't, maybe I'm stepping on toes here. Uh, don't fight with Colorado State fans. But it just is, it just seems like a really silly thing to fight about. Um, I was talking with someone between services. Uh, I grew up in Missouri, and it's such a stupid thing. But in Missouri, like, there's very much a sense of this is what the Midwest is. And Missouri is the Midwest. And so what I heard, uh, ten or five or ten years ago, I heard someone say that Wisconsin was part of the Midwest. And I thought, that is the stupidest thing in the world. And I think I told them that. I might have gotten a little bit heated with them. But then looking back at that now, and thinking about the fight, fighting the good fight, fighting the good fight, I think that's a incredibly stupid, dumb, worthless thing to fight about. So there are a number of things uh, that we all fight for. Uh, I'm going to fight for my kids, and I think every parent in this room 
would fight tooth and nail to the death for their kids. I think that's a good fight. But there's other fights, like we just talked about, that are pretty dumb. Paul, when he's talking about the good fight of faith, he's saying there is a good fight. Let's get away from the bad fights. Um, So when he's talking to Timothy about this, he starts in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, which is what Mike talked about last week. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And I think it's, I don't want to just skim past those six words you use there. I don't want to just say, okay, pursue these things. We've all heard those words in church before. Those are churchy words, etc. and move on. But there's some real meaty things that, in all this whole letter Paul to Tim, from Paul to Timothy, that Paul is using those words to continue to reiterate and repeat, man, these guys, these things are important. So when he's talking about righteousness, he's talking about an observable uprightness. Not that we say, I believe Jesus, but when we go out in the world, we go out and do stupid things that the world will look at and say, oh, that's normal. But that we're living a righteousness, that we're living a life that says, yeah, I, I don't just say I follow Jesus, but I follow Jesus. There's a moral turptitude. I always want to say turpentine. Turptitude to that. We, we live in a way where people say, that guy is not just blowing smoke. He's actually believing. He's, he's working on his righteousness. Godliness is the idea that we maintain a vertical relationship with God and it, and it plays out in our horizontal relationship with other people. A lot of times we, we it's the whole, when, Matthew, or when Jesus is talking to Matthew about hiding, don't hide the, the candle under the bushel. When we have a vertical life with God, don't hide that, but spread it out so people, so people know that. That's the godliness. It doesn't come from us. We're not, if we try to be horizontal and show God to people without being connected to God in a vertical way, that's not, that's going to get exposed pretty quickly. But Paul is talking about the vertical with God and the horizontal with people have to be together. The faith is a full-fledged faith. It's saying we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We believe that God is the creator of everything. We believe we are made in his image, yet we still struggle in sin. That's a full-fledged faith. And if we're not there, Paul says, man, pursue it. It's worth pursuing. If you're in a, eh, maybe that's true, maybe I... Paul says, pursue. Go after it. Love is its for God. It's for others. It's for people who are our enemies. It's for people that we would normally hate. It's for people who have gone against us. It's for those fans that we would normally fight because they're fans of a different team. Love is for everyone. The idea of steadfastness is a stick to It's something that the martyrs of church history that would die for their faith or when asked to renounce their faith, they'd say, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm sticking with Jesus. He's done everything with me. And then they are burned at the stake or their skin is flayed off or they are torn apart by horses. It's a steadfastness. They're sticking to it. In a gentleness, there is an idea of meek-spiritedness, especially towards opponents of the gospel. Um, one commentator I read said, it is an attitude of patient, gentle composure that encourages the repentance of the unbeliever and the apostate. So when Paul, or when Paul talked in 1 Timothy 1 a long time ago about a couple of dudes named Hymenaeus and Alexander, who says they shipwrecked their faith. They were in the faith, but they shipwrecked it. They steered 
They're shipped for whatever reasons into the rocks, and it's on the rocks, and their faith has fallen apart. And Paul says this gentleness is the idea of going to someone who either doesn't know Jesus or someone who has known Jesus, and not just say, are you stupid? But there's a gentleness about it. There's, there's a, a, a strong meekness that says, man, I, I, I think what you've done, what you believe, what you've followed, this thing you've gone into, is a mess. But man, there's a gentleness that comes from Jesus. And Paul says, pursue them. We looked last week about the things he says to flee from. And again, 2 through 10, if you were here last week, you were in this passage. But false leadership, Paul is saying, it teaches a different doctrine. It's conceited. Loves controversy, quarrels, envious, constant dissension, and slanderous, and has evil suspicions, and has constant friction, and has, there's a desire to be rich and a lover of money. And Paul says, flee from that, and as you're fleeing from that, pursue. Don't just end up in a neutral zone, but pursue godly leadership of righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, loving, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And I, I, I maybe you're one of those people that says, says that sees leadership up there and say, ah, I'm not. I'm not desiring to be an elder in the church. I'm not desiring to be a deacon or come on staff or fill out an application to come and work in our church offices. Maybe you're not like that at all. That's great. But I think every single one of us in this room, if you, if you have kids or whether they're young, my kids' ages are grown, you desire to help lead those kids in a godly life. Whatever atmosphere you guys are working in, whatever neighborhood you guys live in, there's a desire to help lead people to Jesus. And so these things that Paul is talking about are not just for people who aspire to be elders or deacons or ministers or pastors, but it's for anyone who has an opportunity to lead someone in the ways of Christ. And Paul says, stay away from that and pursue godly leadership. Pursue those things. And these aren't said to puff up, but they're said to tamp down. When this is not a checklist for people who desire to be, for, for someone who says, yeah, I'm doing all these things, to go to an elder and say, listen, I'm, I'm righteous, I'm godly, I'm faithful, I'm loving, I'm steadfast, I'm gentle, where do I sign up to be an elder? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying there's a humility, the opposite of conceited under false leadership is, is humble. There's a humility in saying, man, these are just things that I am. And whatever the Lord wants to do, he does. Um, when I was thinking about this, I could not get uh, a certain person out of my head. And there's, when I served down in Florida, um, there was a guy I worked with, worked with named Chris. Um, and he was truly now, and I, I don't say this to stomp on anybody's feet, um, but he was truly the godliest man I've ever known. He was only, he was probably 40, 45 at the time, but he was as... Um, what's the word I want to look for? He was as qualified to be an elder as anyone I've ever known. Now he he was incredibly his his kids loved him. He, he just doted on his wife. Was such a good wife. Was such a good husband to her. Um, he was he worked in the what he did. He worked in some kind of science thing, and I'm an idiot, so I don't exactly know what. Uh, but he worked in this thing where he contracted out with people all over the Tampa Bay area. And so probably dozens and hundreds of contracts, and I never heard a bad word about him. Before, I don't know if Yelp was around 15 years ago, but he never would have had a bad review on Yelp. Just an upstanding, incredible guy. Uh, he, was, he knew scripture. He had a master's degree from uh, really prom, I think Gordon Conwell 
is, which is a really prominent Christian seminary. He had his doctorate in some, something science-y, like incredibly gifted, good, awesome, loving, kind, righteous, faithful, steadfast guy. And when we approached him to be an elder, for three or four years in a row, he said, no, I'm just not ready. I'm just, like, I don't feel like I'm qualified. And we wanted to say, Chris, you're qualified. Chris, like all these things and everything Paul has said earlier in 1 Timothy, all the things he says later in Titus about church leadership, Chris, you're qualified. But time and time again, he's like, no, I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. And then when he finally accepted a couple of years after he started asking me, he was so good at it. He fulfilled those godly things. Even if he knew he fulfilled those godly things, there was nothing in him that said, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's go. He was like Timothy. So when Timothy is, when Paul is telling Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith, I just to finish the Chris illustration, and that's what Chris was doing. And Timothy here is fighting the good fight of the faith. He's taking hold of the eternal life to which he was called, and about which Timothy had already made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I don't know if you caught the last word of verse 11, but the last word of verse 11 is gentleness. And the first word of verse 12 is fight. Gentleness and fight are not normally two words that go together. And yes, Paul is doing a different sentence. I'm under, I'm, I understand a little bit about how grammar works. But the idea of gentleness and fight just are not common words. They do not link up. Yet Paul still is here using them in the exact same breath and saying there's a gentleness to being a believer. But man, there's still fights to have. There's still things that you have to take a firm stand about. And so it just is, I don't know necessarily what gentle fighting looks like. I don't know how to fight in a gentle way. But it really is one of those things that we just don't pick our fights well all the time. We're much less Paul, fight the good fight of faith, than more like the Beastie Boys, you got to fight for your right. Like it just, we don't fight well sometimes. Um, I, a lot of times I like to pull out, there's a website I'll pull up. Um, I like to pull up the phrase persecution.org, and I'm sure a lot of you know of it. But persecution.org tells about the persecution of believers all around the world. And when I think about good fights, I think about these type of things. I'll just read you some of the headlines. Um, it says, Taliban persecution encourages Islamic extremists worldwide. And the same article says that Afghanistan, where this is all happening, is the most dangerous place for Christians today. Um, but if you're a man, they'll kill you right from the get-go. If you're a woman, they'll They'll, you'll usually end up in slavery. Um, Bishop James Zhu Zahim and the disappearing priest of China. Another one. Five years on, abducted Pastor Raymond Coe's whereabouts still unknown. For five years, he's been gone. Um, there's an organization that expresses concern over Azerbaijani plan to erase art sex. I don't know if that pronounced that correctly. Christian heritage. They're trying to completely eliminate Christian heritage. Patriarch of the Eritrean Orthodox Church dies in detention. Christian youth killed in Pakistan. Islamist groups entrenched in Syria. And time and time again, on just this website, with these 5% of stories that they probably know of, these people that are dying for the faith, that are giving up their lives and their families and their possessions, and they're being stolen from them, and they are being martyred for Jesus, that's the good fight of the faith. That's the good fight where we're not just wasting time on silly things. And yeah, we can have discussions about different nuances of Scripture, and I don't necessarily agree with the same 
views on the end times, there's a lot of you, mine, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine, but that's not a fight worth having. Fighting a good fight of faith is saying, whatever it looks like to follow Jesus, man, I'm in. Let's do it. That's the fight that I want to fight. So, and taking hold of the eternal life. Paul's using very aggressive words there. He's saying fight. He's saying take hold of. Um, in these days, we don't know exactly where Paul was writing this, this letter to Timothy from. A lot of people think it was Corinth. And if it was Corinth, uh, Corinth was known as a place that, that had a games called the, I'm going to completely screw this up, Isthmian Games, but it's a contemporary of the Olympic Games. So even then, they'd have like the Olympic Games every two to four years, um, but then the Isthmian Games would go in between. So it had them in, you guys understand that. I was going to try to do backwards BC math, and I was going to mess it up anyway. But the Isthmian Games are in between that. And so the idea of, and now we're in Olympic season right now, and the idea, I mean, and so you've all heard the stories, and you know that, but kids, there's kids that are starting out skiing or snowboarding at four and five and six years old and training God knows what every day for that, and they go to the Olympics, and they go through all these trials even to get to the Olympics, and finally they get there, and there's one person in the world who's best at those things. And that's the idea that Paul's getting at here. Not that there's only one best Christian in the world, because that's taken. But... <laughs> Paul's saying, listen, you got to fight for it, man. Like, go and do it and take hold of it and let's get it and strive in everything you have. Go for it. And it's worth going for. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the idea of eternal life. It shows up in John 17, which we looked at however long ago. So when Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Um, from time to time, I'll ask the junior hires and high schoolers or whoever else, I'll say, you know, so what is it, what's the benefit? Like, why would you be a Christian? What's the benefit? And 95% of the time, the answer is usually, well, we get to go to heaven, which is a great answer. That's biblical. That's a good reason to be a Christian. But then I always try to follow up with, okay, so, but, like, the rest of this life is supposed to suck. Like, if we go to heaven and we live 90 years on this earth, we just, like, does it just, is it just awful? Is it kind of like a destitute man who knows he's going to receive the inheritance from a guy who has a huge house and a huge <laughs> bank account and Bitcoin and whatever else, riches of his life, but he's just this destitute guy he knows he's going to receive that inheritance from day from his benefactor, he receives zero benefits from it now. Is that what being a Christian is like? We're just waiting to go to eternal life and then we get all the promises of our rich benefactor, Jesus? John says this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life that we're in right now. We have eternal life is knowing the only true God. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ whom God has sent. And that is such, it's hard for me to fathom now because I've been a believer for so long. But being around people who are struggling with faith and being around people who are not believers, like there's so much, there really truly is. Just this, well, I guess, I, I guess life just kind of happens. But as a believer, you can wake up and say, man, life is awful. But you know Jesus. You know God. There's, there's still a hope. And there's a 
I was praying with a few people beforehand, a few people prayed with me, which I appreciate, but like the hope that comes through that is not just a, well, I pray that these things work out. We're praying to the Lord, to God of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. This is eternal life. It's an incredible thing. Continue on. Verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honored eternal, eternal dominion. Amen. Paul charges Timothy in the presence of God to keep the commandment unstained because Christ Jesus is already before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. And so when I read that this week, I thought, okay, we know Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate, but what exactly is Jesus, or is Paul talking about here? Um, so I'll put, I put him up here on the slide. In the book of John, Jesus has, in my count, and this was, I don't think this is an incomplete count, I think it's an exhaustive list, but he had four different things that he said, that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate. Now, when Paul writes these words, that who had a successful Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandment unstained, there are some people that say that Paul was referencing some words of Jesus to Pontius Pilate that aren't in scripture, they just didn't show up there because John didn't mention them or anything like that. They're just some words, and that was a good confession. But it also makes sense that in all the words in the book of John that Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, there's some pretty strong confessions that Jesus is making there. And like I said, these are the four times um, in the, I think it's an exhaustive list, but if I'm wrong, you can email me later, that Jesus talks to Pontius Pilate. So in 1834, Pontius says, are you the king of the Jews? Pontius is not his name. That's an idiot thing to say. Pontius is his title. Pilate's his name. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord, or others say it to you about me? So Jesus is kind of testing Pilate, I think, there. 1836, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And I wonder if that's maybe what Paul was getting at. When he's talking about fighting the good fight of faith, because Jesus is in his confession saying, Listen, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And if you recall this whole story where Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate, this is literally like maybe an hour or two before Jesus even goes to the cross. So this is one of the last conversations he would have had with anyone when Jesus is having this conversation with Pontius Pilate. And he's saying, Listen, let's, this is, these are important things. And when he's referencing fighting, he could absolutely have been referencing right before this when in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of a guy who came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, don't do that. There's more important things to fight for than even Jesus, than even the situation and the circumstances of Jesus was in at that time. Because his kingdom is not from this world. Verse 37, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then in the next chapter, 1911, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
So is it any confession of those that, that Paul's getting at in particular? I don't know if it is. But when he is saying this, when Paul again is saying this to Timothy, talking about that good confession, I think the, Paul, I think the point, and this is just one guy's interpretation, I think the point is that, Je- or that Paul was saying that the, the confession that Jesus was making is that Jesus is the king. The, the kingdom of God is not a worldly thing that we're necessarily fighting for, having to cut people's ears off or go and crusade to other places. That's not what we're going for. That's not what Jesus is confessing. Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I'm the Lord. My kingdom is not of this world. There are some things that matter, but if they're not of the, if the kingdom of God, if they're not for Jesus, then they just don't matter. That's what the good fight is. Again, that's just my impression. And he's saying, whatever that confession is, whatever the confession of Jesus is Lord, that his kingdom is not of this earth, that we're to be concerned about an earth, uh, heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly kingdom, he says, keep that commandment unstained and free from pr- reproach. Reproach is keeping it from shame. We're not shaming the commandment of God. We're not shaming the commandment of Jesus, the good confession that Christ made before Pilate with our stupid, inane, vapid fights that we sometimes pick and sometimes even under the name of Christendom. Paul says, keep just don't bring shame upon that. If you're going to fight a fight, and you're going to fight it for Jesus, then fight the good fight of faith that Jesus told you to fight. Because Jesus dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one's ever seen or can see. And I love that Jesus, who, is unapproachable, who, who lives an unapproachable life, approaches us. He is a God who we have zero hope to go towards or move towards or see or know unless he did what he did on the cross to open up that avenue of prayer and the Holy Spirit coming into our, into our lives for. So the one who lives in an unapproachable life approaches us. Amen and amen. He continues, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that which is truly life. Uh, I was watching TV with my kids last night. I have a 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and a 6-year-old. And my daughter, Shay, my first daughter, Shay, she's 8. And we were watching The Amazing Race, which is um, a show where people race around the world. And it sounds, looks fun. It's one of those shows that if you're going to go be on a reality show, there's some stupid ones. That one looks fun. But in the promo for it, there was a team, I think they were from Miami, and they were two sisters. But in the promo, it's just like, you know, like these guys and like their really fancy lives, and oh, look how cool they are. And these, these ladies were on living, or not living, they were sitting on a yacht. And my daughter, Shay, she says, man, they must be rich. And I said, why? She said, because they're on a yacht. And I'm going to say, Shay, I don't know how much it costs to rent a yacht, but we could probably rent a yacht, and not, you know, for like half an hour or something like that, hour probably not. <laughs> but we could rent a yacht. But it just, it, as she said that, not, you know, obviously I have no idea about the backstory of that whole scene with the ladies in the yacht, but as I, I, I did think about when she said that, man, we're sitting in this comfortable house, able to pay for heat at a place that we like it at, we have all the clothes we need. We have all the food we need. Our, we're just, we're in a, we are, in this present age, we are rich. 
And Paul is saying to those, charge them not to be haughty. Don't, don't have them set their hopes on, on the uncertainty of riches, but instead on God. If we are abundantly supplied, and my family is, I know many of your families are, if we are abundantly supplied, then that, that should even pour us closer and, and help, help, us, help us press even more to God, who Scripture says provides us with these things. And with those things, we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And by doing so, we're storing up treasure. And I don't think, again, with the whole eternal life thing, I don't think this is G- or Paul saying, listen, by doing good, by being rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. I don't think this is Paul saying, yeah, you're going to store up all these treasures for yourself in heaven, even though there's other places. I think it's, it's Matthew and other places where he's saying, you're getting these, I mean, you're, I brought it up. Don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. But I don't think that's what, I don't, I don't know if that's what Paul's talking about here. I think when he's talking about these things, do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's not, you're not storing up treasure, like literal treasure, like your Scrooge McDuck diving through your vault of gold or anything like that. But there's, by doing those things, by being, a, by, by loving people with the love of Jesus like we've been loved, by doing good and, and being generous, like that. again, that's not sharing up, that's not building up a bank account, that's not us building up a 401k or anything like that, but it's doing something inside of us. It's doing something inside of us because when we're living those lives, the Holy Spirit's doing this miraculous work inside of us that says, man, there's, there's a better way to live than just hoarding things. And if we're generous in all those things, there's a better way to live where God is continually showing us that he's the one who richly provides. And it's not just these random things or we put our money in banks. And I, I joked about Bitcoin earlier, even though I don't know what that is, but I know it kind of goes up and down. And that's really the only extent of Bitcoin that I know. But it's like, the, I mean, by putting our things in those things or our hope in those things, the opposite is just understanding, man, God takes care of us. God takes care of us and gives us everything we need to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation. Next couple of verses, and the last couple of verses. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit and trust in avoid, avoid the irreverent battle of contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Oh, Timothy. My son is 10, his name is Landry, and I, I don't know if I've ever said to him, oh Landry, but if I did, it's a sense of, Landry, there's so much better I want for you. You're getting upset about these things, you're concerned about these small things, whether it's, you know, whatever 10-year-olds are concerned about. Oh Landry, I have so much more desire for you than the, than the simple 10-year-old way that your mind works. And that's not that he doesn't care about those things. That's not saying that he doesn't have emotions about those things. But there's, again, in the maturity of adulthood, oh man, there's so many more important things I want him to worry about. And that's the fatherly telling that, Jesus, that Paul takes here to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard, deposit, and trust to you. And all three of those words themselves, guard, deposit, and trust, are just so rich. Guard is those big, fat, ugly guys on the offensive line that guard the quarterback, the best quarterback in the NFL, 
Patrick Mahomes. He has, he has good guards, and they're well-paid, and they're big and strong, and that's their job. Guard is the, the tattooed, mustache, or goateed guys that stand behind the celebrities that are paid however much money you're paid to be a guard, to guard and make sure that no one is doing whatever people do to celebrities. I don't know that. But, like, but they're guarding you. It's a big deal. And, Tim, and Paul is saying to Timothy, guard this deposit that, that, that you didn't earn, that you didn't do anything for, but the deposit has been given to you. And it's, it, it's, been, it's been, like Paul says, it's been entrusted to you. And this deposit, again, it's not something we earn. It's just something that God says, here it is. We're supposed to guard that as it's entrusted to us. And, um, so I, I coach third and fourth grade boys basketball because my son's on it, and it's super fun. But every time, so we practice twice a week, every time the parents drop their kids off, they drop them off, and they leave. And I just kept thinking, man, like, it's a huge thing to be entrusted with other people's kids. Like, those parents have no idea. Like, I could, I could give a firearm to each one of those kids and go knock off a liquor store. Like, but, but they are entrusting, they are entrusting those children to me. They're entrusting that I will sit there for an hour, keep them safe, Try to teach them basketball. There's also a lot of babysitting that goes on. But they entrust their children to me. That's a huge deal. Paul said to Timothy, guard that deposit and trust in you. There's this huge thing that's been that Paul says, or God says, even through Paul, here it is. And it's one of those things, just like I don't feel adequate or necessarily even comfortable watching people's kids for an hour. I think there's some part of Paul and Timothy saying, oh man, this, these riches from God, this truth from the Lord, I, am, I feel inadequate. But still, God gives it to us. And we're told to guard it. And to avoid the irreverent battle and contradictions, what is falsely called knowledge. I don't, there's, as I thought about this sermon the last couple of days, I know I'm not alone in thinking there is so much irreverent babble out there. And we could go, we could, I could, there's, I mean, oh man. There's so many stupid people saying so many stupid things. <laughs> and they, they have these ideas, and even Paul says contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And this is, but people still fight for that. And even people that are believers and call them, and, and, and confess the name of Christ and come to church on a regular basis, we still, like, we're still fighting some of those fights. And Paul says, man, just avoid that stuff. It's, it's vapid. It's asinine. It means nothing. It's worthless. Just stay away from it. And the other part of it is, if, you, if you're avoiding those things, or people that are not avoiding those things, some who have professed it are swerving from the faith. That's the penalty. Or that's the, in, at the outcome of what happens. So Paul says, avoid it. Uh, I'll show you this, because I think it's funny. Uh, so you can, I think, I think it's big enough that you can read it. So the guy's saying, I've heard the rhetoric from both sides. It's time to do my own research on the real truth. So he pulls up, uh, he googies, not googles, because... Uh, he googies hotly debated topic. 
And there are 80,000 results, but he clicks on literally the first link that agrees with what you already believe. That completely supports your viewpoint without challenging it in any way. And then, I don't know if you can see it, but another link says, don't worry about this. But there's so many contradictions and irreverent babbling. I, 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 the last, he didn't even have sunglasses in the first scene. Uh, but he found sunglasses just to pull them down and say, jackpot, at the last scene. <laughs> That's my favorite part. But, like, there's so much irreverent babbling and contradictions that people call knowledge that we, it has, we have no problem finding it. And we could go on so many rants, and I'm trying hard not to go on so many rants here, but when it comes to religion, when it comes to Christianity, if you're going in trying to find a reverent babble or things that contradict the truth, you're going to find something. That's not to say, I'm absolutely not saying don't be a critical thinker. I am, and Mike, Mike said that phrase last week, and I don't remember anything else he said, but he said critical thinking, um, so thanks Mike for using a phrase that I've heard a thousand times before, but it's just, the, like, I'm not saying not to be a critical thinker, but if you're going in to an argument just looking for a reverent babble or things that contradict the truth, and you're just clicking on things you agree with, then you might be one of those irreverent babblers and those people that say they're knowledgeable, but they're not. And in the very next book from Paul's Timothy, 2 Timothy, which um, occurs right after 1 Timothy. But in 2.23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. Because there's enough of us in and outside the church who just want to have foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels because we like that. And going all the way back to the beginning of, of, uh, the beginning of what I've said, man, there's something worth fighting, and there's something not worth fighting. And if it is not fighting a good fight of faith, then Paul says, just stay away from it. Have nothing to do with them. Anyways, with the last four words of 1 Timothy, grace be with you. The you there is not just Timothy. The you there is actually the church that Timothy's writing to, and because no members of that church are still around today, we can read 1 Timothy and say, confidently that when Paul is saying grace be with you, he's writing to the church, the universal church, even this small little enclave of the church in Laramie, Wyoming. Grace be with you. And grace, you know this, but grace is the idea of unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve what he has done for us. We don't deserve the salvation he's brought upon us and given us a chance to accept. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit and the miraculous work the Holy Spirit continues to do in us to do even a lot of things that Paul has already talked about, to, to fight the good faith, to avoid the irreverent babble, to speak the good confession. That's not on us. We don't do that on our own. But the unmerited favor that God gives us, that grace, Paul says, grace be with you. All those things, let it be with you. Man, again, there's a whole lot of stuff in 6, 11 through 21. I feel like there, were, there could have been three or four different sermons written there. But that's just for me. It's one of those pet passages you skip past and be like, all right, I know I need to read all of 1 Timothy, so grace be with you. And, and you can read four words in no time. But 
like it's one of those words that's really easy to skip past, but then we actually get into it like, okay. Unmerited favor to those who believe. It's pretty awesome. So let's pray. God, thank you for that unmerited favor that we don't deserve. God, and we say that all the time. Grace is not a new word or a new concept to any of us. The idea of us getting what we don't deserve is not a new idea or a new concept to any of us who have spent more than two or three or four Sundays in church in our lives. Oh man, God, I know for me, like I just want to grasp that. That I, my life is so ugly. And my, my soul and my spirit can be so ugly at times. And I, I am, there are times I'm so far from faith and so far from obedience and so far from living any sort of a life that you want me to live. And God, <laughs> grace be with us. Grace be with me. God, we help us understand. God, not just the depths of our depravity, because you don't want us to stay there. But to understand that we're not people who sometimes do good and sometimes we make mistakes. Help us understand that's not the truth. Help us understand the truth that we, without the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives, would never even come close to living a life of obedience to you. And so God, in those times, in our messes, in our disobedience, in all of those things, God, grace is with us. Man, God, we're, we're just, let us be moved by that. In Jesus' name, amen.